This is a podcast asking the very best in the world how to stay resilient. I'm Michael Bungay-Stanier, and we will get through this. It must have been close to 30 years ago that I first got an inkling of complexity. And it was when I picked up uh, Margaret Wheatley's book, Leadership and the New Science. And it's, it is an ugly book. I mean, it's got this brown cover that is probably harkens back to its 1980s publication date. It's got this kind of weird shape on the front of it. There's nothing in the design of this book that would make you want to pick it up. But somehow I did, and I jumped into it. And it, kind of my head exploded a little bit because it was the first time I started understanding what a system was. I started understanding what complexity was. And I suddenly went, this explains everything about my experience about organizational life because they keep trying to do stuff that is idiotic as soon as you understand that organizations are complex and and they're not machines where you you know push a button and something pops out the other side. That's just not the way organizations work because they're full of people and they're full of weird <laughs> processes and systems. So I read this book and went, this is amazing. I have no idea what to do with this. And even though I worked in the whole field of organizational development and change management and that for years, I could never bridge the gap between this understanding and excitement of complexity and the science of complexity and actually trying to bring that into the world of let's let's act on this let's do something with this a couple of months ago i was giving a talk and i got to meet somebody who i connected with before but hadn't really connected with his guy his name is aaron dignan he's the founder of a organization called the ready and he and i just happened to be both speaking at this big uh company's conference together so we sat in the bar and we shot the breeze and it was great and I was like, I need to go back. Did I read his book? I'm not sure. Maybe I did. Maybe I didn't. I, I went back and I grabbed his book. It's called Brave New Work. I hadn't read it. I love this book. Honestly, this is one of the most exciting books that I have read in the last 12 months. I have, <laughs> you know, it was like, okay, I'm going to start writing on books again because I need to write exclamation marks next to assorted paragraphs in this book. And what's so lovely about this book is that it has a dual spiral of like DNA is double helix. And one of the helixes around being people positive, having people at the heart of your organizational life. And the other is about being complexity conscious, understanding what it actually takes for an organization to evolve and to grow and to change. And he combines these in a way that is truly intriguing. So in terms of resilience, and we will get through this, Understanding how to be people positive, understanding how to be complexity conscious, I think are two essential principles, and we are going to dive into it with Aaron. So Aaron, welcome. Thanks. Yeah, let's do it. What what pulled you into wanting to know or wanting to understand complexity? For me, it was Meg Wheatley, but I'm curious to know what was, <laughs> what, was, what was the beckoning siren call for you? Well, it starts earlier for me, it starts from a kind of a, a values and perspective space, which is I've just always been really interested in potential, uh, human potential and, and the potential of our systems. And more importantly, I've always really been interested in weird, intractable problems. You know, the things that we don't fix, the things that we don't address, the things that we don't uh, appropriately 
address. And so like when you look at something like the pandemic, for example, or the climate or, you know, inequality or social mobility or anything like that, it has this uh, it has this nature about it that makes it so much more difficult to 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 steer around and to and to react to and to know what's right and what's wrong. And I've always found that fascinating. And I didn't have a language for that. Um, and then I started to stumble upon a bunch of work when I was, you know, digging into this brave new workspace and doing some of the early research that ultimately became the book. And so I tripped over Dave Snowden and over certainly Meg Wheatley and over a bunch of people who are not nearly as famous who write about, you know, right. dynamic systems and complexity, um, people that study ants, uh, people that study neurons, immune systems, and suddenly, and then ultimately like the Santa Fe Institute for Complexity. Um, and, and, you know, Jeff and some of the other people there. So the whole thing like became this diaspora of complexity thinkers that I could, could drink from the fire hose from, and it, it all started to click sort of like you were describing, uh, you know, it clicked that there was a way of perceiving the world that was different than what I had been taught in school. And that if I looked through that lens, suddenly I, I, you know, there were things we could do and also things we can't do and we can let go of. So for the people who are listening, going, look, you two are frothing at the mouth about complexity, but what the <laughs> hell are you talking about? Can you give us a primer around what is complexity and how does it fit in with other ways of understanding systems in the world? Yeah, sure. I'll try. So um, the there are many contexts or types of systems in the world, types of problems, types of challenges, types of systems that we encounter, and they have different natures. And so we don't have to get into all of them, but let's just say let, to, to focus, let's talk about complicated and complex or, yeah. you know, the ordered system and the, and the you know, the less ordered system. Um, so complicated is what we're used to talking about as human beings and business people. That's things that are machine-like, predictable, mm -hmm. controllable, unlikely to surprise us, require some expertise or certification to master, you know, your master watchmaker, your master mechanic. Um, and, and so those things are the kinds of systems where if you have a problem, you can solve it. Uh, and you can often solve it with a checklist or a set of steps. Um, yeah. you know, that kind of thing, like how to, how to make an omelet. Uh, well, if you follow all the steps, you'll get a reasonably good omelet or how to yeah. bake a cake. Um, so, you know, complicated stuff are the, those things where it's not completely intuitive. You have to learn, but, but fundamentally it is predictable. The complex though, uh, is, is not causal. It doesn't have cause and effect like that at the heart of it. It is, uh, what Dave Snowden calls dispositional. So it has a way it's has a disposition, has an attitude, a way it's trending. So we can look outside at the weather, which is a complex system and say, hey, looks looks rainy today. Um, and and <laughs> right. we're right. Right. We know the vector, but we don't know exactly what's going to happen. And we certainly don't know what would happen if we like released a bunch of particles into the atmosphere. Right. Um, would that make the rain better or worse or acid or, you know, like there's a lot yeah. of possibilities. So um, so with complex systems like gardens, like seven-year-olds, like traffic, like <laughs> neurons, like ants, like, you know, yeah. cities, um, we, we're we going to be surprised. And, and when we have a problem, we can't solve it. We can only manage it. And so uh, we have to adopt a different stance, a, a more humble stance. And also a lot of the things that you hear people rattling on about in the Agile community about test and learn and validating things and finding out through contact with reality um, you know, those things become focal to to managing complexity. So, yeah, that's my that's the way I describe it. Beautiful. What do you mean by a more humble stance? 
So my experience of both my own leadership and the leadership of people around me throughout my career has been that the role of the leader, and I put that in quotes, um, is to is to know and to be to have the answers, to be certain, to set a path and and drive everyone towards it. You know, you kind of have to. We have to cross the Arctic, and right. we're not going to get drug, you know, drug by hook, line, and sinker across the finish line. And so there's this very deterministic, very focused, very um, masculine in some cases, or, or, you know, kind of, uh, force driven approach to like, yeah, I need someone to come in here and just make this happen. You hear that a lot at work. Right. Um, and what I mean by humility is when you're really faced with true complexity, you can't know right out of the gate, what's going to happen. You can't make a certain outcome occur. Even if you want to try, even if you want to stand up there on your podium <laughs> and say, it's going to go from 15 cases to zero because I said so, yeah. um, you can't, control it. And so you have to be humble to like the possibilities, all the, all the uh, adjacent possibles and futures and, and be a, be a navigator rather than a driver. This is a, an, an interesting distinction that you set up in the book between the future and adjacent possibles. What say more about that? Yeah. So I, I picked up the term from Steven Johnson. I'm on, honestly not sure where it originates from, but, but for me, it was this description of, one of the fatal flaws in a lot of our visioning and change and kind of, you know, leader work is being like, we need to go from A to B. So, right. you know, B is way over there and A is here and we're going to get there and we just have to drag ourselves across across <laughs> that path. And and what what I have learned is like, we can't really see beyond in complexity. We can't really see beyond what's just what's just barely possible, right? <laughs> right. So like, if I see a person that I want to be friends with in the room... Uh, like, for example, when you and I met in the bar, if I'd been like, Michael, we should vacation together. How's next <laughs> week? You would have been like, uh, I'm not really sure. Like, let's let's take it like take it a pace. But if I had said, hey, will you come be on our podcast? Well, that was part of the adjacent possible. Right. Right. And so so the idea is like, what what is within the realm of possibility for us now? And even if we aspire to be more adaptive or more responsive or more agile or more human or more successful or to grow or what have like what can we do next week? Like what, what, what is one step away? Because that's really all we can do. And then from there we take the next step and the next and the next, and some are bigger and some are smaller. But, um, this idea that we're going to like realize a certain future is, you know, is folly. How do you talk to the leaders that, I mean, your firm is called the ready and it works with lots of big organizations around the world who have had, you know, years, their their entire existence being based around, a, let's call it a fantasy of let's predict the future. <laughs> sure. Let's set a strategy. It's a five year strategy. No, this let's do a ten year strategy, <laughs> and we're going to predict. We're going to we're going to name B, and then we're going to haul out whatever we can across the line to try and get from A to B. And now you're asking for something that feels. It involves giving up assorted illusions of control, mm -hmm. of status, of hierarchy, of certainty. And I can think of a thousand – I mean, like, I am all in on this stuff, and just saying that scares me. Right, right, right. <laughs> how, do you, how do you help the people who this is – for whom this is a shock to think this might be – this might be an adjacent possible I want to step into? I think we sort of have to play to the heart and the head here. So the first thing that we try to do is get people to tune into what they already know. 
So my best example or metaphor that I think will land with the audience is like, you know, when you've been in a job too long and you know it's time to move on or a relationship too long and you know it's time to move on, but you haven't done anything about it? My, I, I have experienced that. Come, <laughs> now, now you mention it. <laughs> my experience is that um, most people, when they're working in bureaucracy and hierarchy and, and adopting the the kind of normal posture and mask of, of leadership as we understood it in, you know, 1980s business school, um, they know, they know, they know it's not working. They know it's not serving them energetically, socially, strategically, <laughs> like, yeah. but, but since they haven't yet been willing to confront that and spend time with that, there's, there's a gap. And so part of it is, is giving folks the language, the, you know, the examples, the space, frankly, just the time and space to like, let's tune in, let's tune into our feelings and what we know to be true intuitively. And that, that addresses kind of the heart chakra part of this. And mm-hmm. then the head part is is actually really simple. I just ask people to make a trade. So I think it's really tough to take something away. Um, we have yeah. loss aversion and all these other biases that make us want to hold on to our stuffed animals. But um, but I offer people a trade and I say, you know, would you rather have the control of the person that controls the the lighted intersection, the red, yellow, and green lights where you press the button and it turns red and everyone stops? Or would you rather have the control of the designer of the roundabout? who mm-hmm. gets better outcomes on tr- throughput and safety and cost, but who gets to sleep in. And, and once people really see it as a trade, they're like, oh, wait, I get to, I get to focus on my control issues and, and translate them into setting the table, setting the conditions, creating the container in which a living system will thrive. I get to be a gardener. Um, and as a result, I get to let go. And I still yeah. get the outcomes I want. I still get the things I care about. I just don't have to get them through compliance and through force. And so it's a trade. It's not, I don't want to take anything away. I want to offer you a different, I want to offer you, you know, a power screwdriver <laughs> instead of the manual one. You know, I uh, I grew up in Canberra, Australia's national capital, and it's an artificial city in that you know, in 1901, Sydney and Melbourne were fighting over who'd be the capital of Australia. So in the end, they compromised and they picked a spot roughly in between and went, we'll just build a city here and call that the capital. So they brought in a a Chicago architect called Walter Burley Griffin, and he designed this. Actually, his designs are amazing. They're like Parisian um, in their beauty. But one of the one of the things about them is it is a city full of roundabouts. <laughs> Yes. And I love that. And I had talked about it and thought about it for years, but until I read your book, I hadn't got that powerful metaphor of mm. uh, traffic lights and roundabouts and how, as counterintuitive as it sounds, roundabouts are uh, uh, more effective, more efficient, safer, and require a whole lot less – cheaper and require a whole <laughs> lot less actual work and kind of anxiety about management as well. Yeah, and that has been that has been my lived experience too. Is that I've I've run companies both ways, and um, I just couldn't carry all that. I couldn't carry all the stress and anxiety yeah. of trying to control everything, even though that's my personality. You know, initially, part of the language you use around here, I think, is um, switching it from a culture of permission. I'm you know, red light, green light, to a culture of enabling constraints. Because when you come to a roundabout, you can't just do anything you want. You, there mm-hmm. are rules, but there are shared and understood rules around how to do that. Can you give me an example of 
enabling restraints that might show up in an organizational life so people get a sense of what that might mean in practice? Sure, yeah. So um, the the constraints thing is, is a key idea to understand because constraints really define systems. And so you have the startup with no constraints, chaos, context. <laughs> we'll figure <laughs> right. out what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. And everything is a blank piece of paper. And it's, you know, we're around the kitchen table. Um, you have the the bureaucracy, the end up, who has what I would call and what uh, Dave Snowden calls governing constraints. That means bright lines, rules that are hard and fast, no interpretation mm-hmm. necessary. And then you have this third way, which is the enabling constraints. And enabling constraints go by other names like principles, heuristics, rules of Mm -hmm. thumb, um, you know, rules that leave space for decision making. So an example would be like, you know, at the ready, anyone can spend $3,000 a month, however they see fit in service of the purpose. Um, If you serve more than if you want to spend more than that, you have to bring it to more of a decision making forum or get some advice from colleagues. Um, But if you want to spend less than that, we trust you go. Right. And so it's, it's enabling because we are setting a constraint so that nobody like puts a, you know, Bentley on their Amex. <laughs> um, so that's, we've covered that weird edge case possibility. Uh, but we haven't tried to de-risk ourselves down to nothing. And so somebody might use that for training. Somebody might use that to buy supplies. Somebody might use that to pay a designer. Like we don't want to know and we don't care. Yeah. Um, we actually want them to use it however they see fit or not use it if they see fit um, to not use it. And that that's an example of an enabling constraint is it leaves room while giving some guidance. And so often what happens instead is, you know, some tiny thing goes wrong once <laughs> and it then gets embedded in a bureaucracy around <laughs> thou shalt not ever do this in case another edge case like this arises again. And before you know it, you have the US tax code, which is, you know, 8 billion pages long and entirely contradictory all the way through. Yeah, yeah. Jason Fried at Basecamp calls this scarring on the first cut. So as soon as something goes wrong, it's like, all right, (laughs) the alarms go off. Let's build a big, you know, bureaucratic response to that outcome. And like, just because we had one bad actor or one project that went off the rails. And again, this goes back to complexity, right? If you were gardening, and one of the plants in the garden didn't do well, what would you do? I'd rip up every single plant in my garden. (laughs) You know, I'm an edge case. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so I think that I think that we have to go back to that to that mentality of like, what do you do when you don't know a pattern yet, right? Like, let's say, right. take, a, take a child. We're all much better parents than we are managers, by the way. So, mm-hmm. you know, a child makes a mistake and comes home late one time or misses an assignment one time or breaks something one time. What does the responsible parent do? You, you know, provide some feedback and advice and then you leave it alone. You don't like create a whole security system and set a curfew and, you know, go to, go to the, the nth degree, right? But that's what we do in business a lot. So you've just heard a weird musical interlude and you're probably thinking to yourself, what happened? Why are we do? Why is Michael edited in some music? Well, because the gods have a sense of humor, as Aaron and I were talking about control and boundaries and managing stuff, the internet kicked us out <laughs> and we had a back and forth, but it's taken us two weeks to find the time to reconvene the conversation. And part of me was thinking and planning this morning, going, I'll find this way to transition seamlessly so people won't even know. And then I'm like, <laughs> who am I kidding? 
I barely remember what I talked about this morning. I'm certainly not going to remember the nuances of what we covered in the 20 minutes or so that Aaron and I had talked about so far. So you're getting part two of the podcast where same great people, same sexy radio voices, same broad conversation, but different at the same time because it's the perfect way to celebrate an understanding of emergence than to actually have a podcast interview emerge from uncertainty and chaos. So welcome back, Aaron. Thank you so much. Two weeks wiser. Here we are. <laughs> I know. Let's see if anybody can spot the difference. Yes. I I know for myself that nobody will be able to spot any difference whatsoever. <laughs> so I know, because I, I did reread the transcript of where we got up to, that you know I, st- I opened this conversation by, go- by just effectively raving about how much I loved your book, Brave New Work. It really is. I think it really deserves to be a classic in, oh, in management literature. It's so good. And as I was rereading parts of it this morning and kind of getting my head back into the conversation with you, you know, I came across one of the one of the uh, diagrams you put in the, the latter part of the book, which is, uh, so how do, you, how, do you, how do you do some of this stuff? <laughs> how do you move it from good ideas to actual practice? And it was a cycle which um, went from tension, actually, yeah, from tension to practices to experiments back to tensions as a, a way of articulating what it takes to move some of these ideas into practice. And... I love the idea of tension. I think it's really powerful. I feel like I first came across it as a management concept in the work of Robert Fritz, but he may have picked it up from somebody else and just taking it, taking it on. The thing about tension is it comes loaded. When you, people go, there's tension here, that doesn't always bode well. But mm-hmm. you frame it in a different way in the book. How do you think about tension? Yeah, well, I I first stumbled across the concept in Peter Senge's book, The Fifth Discipline, um, where it was really talking about it from a kind of creative source, like the the dynamic tension between a possible future and the present. And then uh, I rediscovered it when I started learning about um, holacracy and playing with some of Brian Robertson's and Tom Thomason's ideas. And so, again, there it's really about recontextualizing it not as a good or a bad thing but kind of as a life force like there is a way things are you as a human being have the ability to sense uh what's needed and what's called for and what might occur and what might be and when you sense that there's a difference between what might be and what is there's sort of a tension there it's like pulling a rubber band where you can kind of now live in two places at once the present and this possible future and and as we tune into those tensions they uh they tell us something about what we might want to try or might want to do or might want to explore and so it could be something as simple as like hey you know i don't really like the way you and i are communicating could be kind of that more um interpersonal challenge on the more negative side of the idea of tension or it could be um I think we should open an office in Bangalore. And that's a that's an opportunistic tension and right. everything in between. And so I think the yeah, the act of playing with tension is one part recontextualizing it to your point as being actually kind of really necessary. Like mm. all living things have tension in them. That's what makes them alive. And so we have to love tension. And then also um, it is, you know, it's a chance to sense and to tune in and to notice. And so you don't, you don't see the tensions if you don't pay attention 
to them if you don't kind of right. tune in. And especially as a leader, especially as someone with power or privilege or who is kind of, you know, doing well in the status quo, it's really easy actually to overlook tension and, sure. and not play into it. So I think those things, the sensing and the recontextualizing allow you to have this, this plate full of things to try. Yeah. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, reading the transcript when you, when we started talking and I was like, oh, I'm interested in complexity. And you went, I'm interested in complexity too, Michael, but I'm interested for the sake of what potential mm. it holds. And I think what you're pointing to with this idea of tension is it is a embodiment of potential. It's like, this is, this is, this is what might change. This is what might be different. This is what might evolve. But it only begins by holding that tension and feeling that tension. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I'm not sure last time we talked about the adjacent possible, but that did, idea yeah. of, yeah, like what's next it's, and what's near, um, tension's really good at that. It's really good at telling us like, hey, you know, this, this meeting sucks. We should change it. <laughs> like, that's great. Let's do it. That's an opportunity. Let's, let's act on that. Let's, let's listen to those uh, sensors in our system. When you're working in an organization... I can imagine there's a certain moment where you go, ah, oh, there are so many tensions here. This is going to be fantastic. I'm looking forward to getting into it with you. And everybody around the table kind of looks <laughs> worried, you know, the, the boss most of all. But everyone's like, oh, see, I knew we should never have hired these people. How do you help people name the tensions? How do you help people choose attention to say this would serve us to actually test it out and experiment with it and practice with it. Yeah. Well, first of all, you very astutely identified the emotional state of many first timers after day one, which is <laughs> like, we just dug up all this stuff that we don't talk about on purpose in order to preserve the <laughs> exactly. peace. And now it feels very scary and overwhelming. So that's normal. And I try and I actually try not to um, placate that too much. Like, I think that's just part of the work, you know, when you first yeah. go to therapy there, you know, you got to get it all out. So I think there's there's some energy to that. One of the things we've noticed is that when it comes to tension, uh, just naming it from scratch, from out of the air, can be hard for some teams and some team members yep. because they lack the language. They're not always looking in every corner. Um, there might be psychological safety issues or reasons sure. why, you know, I don't feel safe to say the thing yeah. that's really going on. So early on, we ended up uh, developing these tension cards. It's kind of like a tarot deck that we uh, put in front of clients just to get them started with tension work. It's not the be all end all, but right. to get them started, because then it says like, hey, the card says maybe we have issues around diversity or we have issues around gender balance here. or We have issues yeah. around equal talk time. And like when the card says it, you kind of have to at least talk about it and say yes or no. And the leader who like quickly tries to stuff that card to the side there's some self-consciousness there of like, what am right. I doing? So they're, they're a prompt. And then they also just invite you to look across the whole OS. So they, they uh, suggest tensions that maybe you don't normally think about around budgeting and resource allocation and compensation and information and things that feel like a given, but actually are not. And so, yeah, so I love prompts and tools like that, tactic, you know, tactile ways to like get into it. And yeah. then later teams can do that more on their own with a, pack of post-its or with a conversation when they when they've started to learn how to have those conversations and tune in i mean in the book you actually list out the is it 60 or 70 different tensions 78 that you, <laughs> seven, so 78 
kind of recurring, predictable, <laughs> this isn't personal, this is just the system throws up these tensions. And I love the idea of this card piece, you know, putting my facilitation hat on, I would call this this third point facilitation, right. which is you remove the you remove the finger pointing between the people and you both get to point at the table together right. and go, right. this, isn't about, this, it's not about you and it's not about me, but you know, this, this thing here, that's, this is the thing we need to solve, not you need to get better at this. And it, it helps give people language. It must also help prioritize as well, because I can imagine one of the slippery ways this happens working with teams is, everybody colludes to pick attention that is less tense and less important and kind of an, 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 an easy but less important thing to deal with rather than actually collectively going, you know what, this is it. Mm, <laughs> this is the mm. hard thing for us to, to work on. Yeah, it's funny. I think uh, in some ways I'm okay with that if the team right. is in a place where they're not ready for whatever reason to tackle the really big one mm. just the progress and the momentum of tackling the small one and learning how to be in that learning loop is valuable so i i will obviously nudge as a facilitator and encourage and cajole to right. see if we can get to a list of things to pursue that are really meaty but if i sense that there's just a gap and we're not going to get there i am I, I, I think any any tension processed is good, and so I'll, yes. I'll settle for, for that, to be sure. I love that. You, you say as soon as you name attention and own attention, you begin the learning loop. T take us through where we go from, okay, we've named attention. Now what happens? Yeah, so I think the once we have a sense of, of what could be or we, or we have a sense of this gap, then we have to figure out, well, what's, what is the adjacent possible? What's a reasonable way to step forward? And often the tensions are a little vague. So we might say, oh, well, we're having problems with communication or we have meetings to prepare for meetings or we have yeah. a problem with our structure or what have you. But that's not a solution. That's, and it's not even really a step forward. It's just a, it's a cloudy space to, to dig mm -hmm. around in. So, so the, the next part of the loop of playing with practice is basically saying, all right, well, is there anything going on inside the organization or outside the organization that looks like it might be the right first step forward? So maybe there's another team that has cracked this. Maybe there's another company somewhere in another country that is publishing right. and writing about the way they're tackling it. So there's a whole host of, you know, obvious new ways of working, different ways of working, different ways of being um, that you can draw from and start to play into. So, you know, in our conversation uh, on the Brave New Work podcast, when you were gracious enough to join, we were talking about really transforming the one-on-one. -on -one. So imagine yeah. saying, I know we're having a bad one-on-one. -on -one. But I don't know <laughs> right. what a good one looks like. Well, you right. could, you know, you could go look at some of the stuff that you talked about and say, all right, well, I'm going to try this stuff. So the practice part of the loop is, is that exploration. It's that walkabout to say, like, what's out there and, and to that. wake up and open up about what's possible. Because, you know, most of us don't have answers there. It's very common for me to sit with a financial team that's like the budgeting process is wasteful and frustrating. Okay, cool. What's the alternative to annual, traditional, top-down McKinsey-style budgeting? Yeah. Dead air. Right. And so, like, we have to go look. And so that means, like, let's go to a Beyond Budgeting Roundtable meeting. Let's go read a book. Let's go talk to someone in the system that's doing it differently. Now we have something to squeeze. So yeah. that's the second piece of the loop. And then the third one, which is the hardest and also the most important, is to actually do the experiment. Um, and there I say, you know, what's a safe-to-try or safe-to-fail way to, to test out the thing that you have 
discovered. And my favorite phrase about this now that I'm really beating, uh, beating a lot on the soapbox is do a radical thing at a non-radical scale. So if you do a radical Ooh, thing at a non-radical scale, you, uh, you have two great advantages. One, if you're wrong and it doesn't work, then you've done something at a scale that's small enough that it won't sink the ship, which is mm-hmm. wonderful. And if you're right, because it was radical, the implications are massive, right? So like yeah. if one group or one team completely redoes their compensation approach or their feedback approach and it's revolutionary, now the implications for the rest of the system are huge which is the exact opposite to how we do most org change where we do non-radical things at radical scales. Right. So like let's let's do an, a reorg where we move seats around so on the big. yacht um, yeah. and then we do it to everybody all at once and it's terrifying and and challenging and and distracting and then when we're right it's like kind of better. Yeah. That's uh that's uh <laughs> I'm like I just love that. I love that that concept. First of all, I I appreciate the the elegance of the articulation because as oh, soon as you say it you, i'm like oh i'm excited about that it also takes me to um you know there's a, a book by or oh, forgotten his name a stanford professor called scaling up mm-hmm. or somebody or other um and he tells stories about how hard it is to scale stuff up and why mm. is it so hard why doesn't that work and it's kind of connecting me back to it feels like those solutions are created within the context of structured, complicated organizations rather than um, complex, emergent ways of thinking about organizations. And this idea of radical at a non-radical scale somehow feels like it offers a greater greater odds in successful scaling as a result of that if, if the thing works. Yeah, because things that are desirable scale. So yeah, it's hard to scale things that nobody wants to do or pay attention to. But like, <laughs> was it hard to scale the iPhone? Was it hard to scale the internet? It took right. time for sure. Yeah. But like, it didn't require centralized direction and planning and, you know, a bunch of uh, a bunch of heavy lifting and, and, you know, manipulation. People want the things that are that are interesting and that and that are dynamic and useful and so yeah when a team figures out how to work well together that is felt it's felt by the teams around them it's felt by those people it's felt by their families and spouses and good practice tends to spread the only problem is that there are impediments to spreading and so often what i talk about when i deal with scale both in the book and in the work is instead of figuring out how we can make scale happen figure out yeah. what is stopping good things from spreading and get right. that out of the way. Cause that's actually what's going on is we're saying like, yeah, people know there are better ways of working out there. They're not allowed to share them or they're not allowed to try them or they're not allowed to do them because of all the bureaucracy. And so actually to me, scale is 100% about removing impediment. I honestly just want to pin you down and go, can we, can we do a 93 hour podcast conversation just to unpack all of this? That's right. That's but right. I'm the Farnham gonna, street edition. <laughs> that's right. I'm just going to keep that for a future plan when I'm back on a plane and we're in the same city together when we're in a bar awesome. and I go, let's drink a glass of bourbon or something. Nice. Um, Aaron, I've so enjoyed these conversations. I'm, I'm a huge fan of your, your work the way you show up, the way you articulate ideas, the way really for the first time for me, you've made understanding what it takes to build an organization that acknowledges uh, human beings at the heart of it and complexity at the heart of it 
feel accessible and doable and liberating. So thank you for all of this. It's been really powerful. Oh, thanks so much. Grateful to be here. For the people who are feeling like me or perhaps not quite as rabid as I am, but kind of at least intrigued, um, where can they find you and your work? Yeah, so uh, The Ready is at TheReady.com. The book is at BraveNewWork.com. The podcast is Brave New Work, which you are featured on prominently, so I, I invite Thank them you. to listen to that. Yes. Um, and uh, and then I spend a lot of time on Twitter uh, communicating about this stuff and having interesting debates and discussions. So I'm at Aaron Dignan on Twitter. Beautiful. Aaron, it's been a pleasure. You're awesome. Thank you. Yeah, cheers. Hey, it's Michael here. Two things before you go. The first is a gift. The second is a request. The gift, I want you to go to mbs.works and hunt down the year of living brilliantly. Really, it's some of my best work because it is a 52-week, 52-teacher, absolutely free video-based course where I spend a lot of time curating some of the smartest people I know and saying, teach me the best of what you've got. If you're looking to really step up, to have a year that's just a little bit sweeter, a little bit better than the year you've just had, that is a terrific resource. So please go and check that out. Absolutely free, no obligation, nothing required other than for you to sign up and get going on it. And then for the request, I just want what every podcast host wants, which is a little bit of love. So if you'd consider going to iTunes or Spotify or whatever your favorite podcast platform is, and giving the podcast a bit of a rating and a bit of a review, that would be amazing. Thank you.